morning, church. Good to see you here this morning. Love that weather out there. So um, I've been taking a trip to Israel every year. We've got one coming up this February. We were full with a waiting list. Now we've got some spots that have opened up. So if you're interested in going to Israel, uh, you can mark on your card, connect card in front of you, Israel, and contact information, and my assistant, Glenna Siebert, will get back to you. And uh, I'll, if that's at all something that's on your heart, I would encourage you that it will be better than you can imagine. For every single person I've ever led there, it is. It's better than you can imagine. And if you're concerned at all with safety, just remind you that uh, I've had three grandkids living there for the last two and a half years. They don't ever think about safety. You are safer there than in Houston. So that's really not going to be an issue. When I was four years old, my family was living in New Orleans, Louisiana. We had, uh, there were four small kids at the time, older sister, six, I'm four, had a two-year-old, daughter, two-year-old girl and a newborn girl. And my parents were living in New Orleans, and I get very sick, and they're not sure what's going on with me. I had some obvious symptoms, such as blood in the urine, and that might be too much information for you, but uh, I'm told about these things. I have faint memories of it. And I'm taken to the large Baptist hospital in New Orleans that I think is still going there. It's the Baptist hospital. And I'm, I'm in there sick. My mother has got a newborn at home and two other uh, t- uh, preschoolers. And so my dad takes off work to stay with me in the hospital. And the doctors are not sure. They're running tests. Uh, they're speculating maybe this is leukemia. Maybe this is Bryce's disease. Uh, they were very concerned about it. Uh, At one point, my dad tells me this, that he goes down to the chapel there in the hospital, gets on his knees, if I remember correctly, and and he basically prays this prayer, Lord God, if you would spare him, then I will dedicate him to you. The next day, I inexplicably get uh, much better, and pretty soon I'm well. They release me from the hospital and never know kind of what happened, but clearly, God healed me. Uh, Maybe a little sequel happened when I was a freshman in college, I had just become a, a, a devoted Christ follower. I feel hard for Jesus Christ when I fell for him. I'm at Rice University. I was, went to Rice University, a secular school, uh, thinking pre-law or something. But during that year, it became crystal clear to me that God wanted me to go into full-time ministry of some kind. And perhaps that was an answer to my dad's prayer. God does not always heal immediately and dramatically, but at times he does. And this morning, we're, we we're introduced to the first recorded example of healing in the book of Acts. Uh, earlier last week, we see there were a lot of signs and wonders in the early church, so no doubt there were others. But now we have the episode recorded in Scripture. And that will give us opportunity to not only look at the details of this story, but then step back at the end and look at healing in the Bible and what does God have for healing today. Before I get there, I want to uh, refer to Jim Simula's book on prayer, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, that so many of you have read and been impacted by. In that book, he quotes a British Bible scholar who translated the New Testament. And 50 years ago, it was a famous translation, the, the J.B. Phillips translation of the New Testament. So this British scholar translates through the book of Acts and uh, over several months, and he writes this after it. He says, after completing Uh, He said, it is impossible to spend several months in close study of the remarkable short book without being profoundly stirred and, to be honest, disturbed. 
The reader is stirred because he has seen Christianity, the real thing in action for the first time in human history. The newborn church, as vulnerable as any human child, having neither money, influence, nor power in the ordinary sense, is setting forth joyfully and courageously to win the pagan world for God through Christ. Yet we cannot help feeling disturbed as well as moved, for this surely is the church as it was meant to be. It is vigorous and flexible. For these are the days before it ever became fat and short of breath through prosperity or muscle-bound by overorganization. These men did not make acts of faith. They believed. They did not say their prayers. They really prayed. They did not hold conferences on psychosomatic medicine. They simply healed the sick. But if they were uncomplicated and naive by modern standards, we have ruefully to admit that they were open on the Godward side in a way that is almost unknown today. Jim Simbola quotes Phillips, and then he concludes, open on the Godward side. Doesn't that stir your spirit? That one brief phrase sums up the secret of power in the early church, a secret that hasn't changed one bit in 20 centuries. This morning, as we look at an example, which the Spirit of God sort of unpacks for us here, and then as we step back and take a, a Bible-wide perspective on what does the Bible say about healing and what is, God, what is God's perspective on healing today, we will see what God has for us. If you'd stand with me for our passage, we're in Acts 3 as we make our way through the book of Acts. I'm going to only read the first 10 verses, but I will get to others later. Acts 3, 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Church, this is God's word. Please be seated. Luke tells us that they are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Because either in emphatic and big ways or in small and subtle ways, Luke will not let us forget that the early church is a house of prayer. That the early, early Christians were devoted to prayer. And you see it all through the book in big ways and small ways. Peter and John were going up to pray at the hour of prayer, 3 p.m. There's a man sitting there, no doubt cross-legged on the dust. He's got this 
a cup or something out, uh, and he is begging for alms. He has been crippled from birth, and later we will find out, next chapter, that he is over 40 years old. So here's a man who has never known the simple pleasures of walking, running, jumping, or even standing unaided. Everywhere he goes and has ever gone, he is completely dependent upon friends to carry him, no wheelchairs. Otherwise, he doesn't move. Now, now think about that. Put yourself in his shoes. Every morning he is taken to the temple, probably to that same gate. He sits cross-legged on the dirt, holds out a cup to those who are hurrying by, and he repeats, alms, alms, alms. He drones on for hour after hour. Most people don't even look at him. They don't see him anymore. When he sees Peter and John and and sort of stops, that's when things happen. Watch what happens in verse 3. Peter and John, about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him. He saw him. He saw him. And he says, look at us. And when the man looked up at him, hoping to receive some money from him. We see in verse 6, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, think about the confidence that Peter had. God, no doubt, had been already doing some healings, and maybe the Spirit of God communicated to Peter, I'm going to heal that man. So Peter could in all confidence say, rise up and walk, I give you what I have in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, fascinating story about verse 6, because when Peter says, King James Version, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you, rise and walk. Well, there's a famous story in history about that, or famous in some circles maybe. Uh, It involves Thomas Aquinas. Now, Thomas Aquinas, if there was a brilliant theological thinker, say, between 1,000 and 1,500, it would be Thomas Aquinas, wrote volumes of scholarly theology, and he lived in the 13th century. During his lifetime, you may know that for much of that time, the Roman Catholic Church, which was the only church there was at that time, I mean, the church in Europe was the Catholic Church, and for long periods of time, there were corrupt popes who weren't really godly men, but were more interested in money and power, and including that happened during Aquinas' life. So Aquinas, this famous theologian, is is in Rome. He goes to visit Pope Innocent II, one of those corrupt popes. When he arrives, the pope is in a room counting a large sum of money, and he says to Aquinas, he said, you see, Thomas, that the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas shot back, but you truly, Father, but, but also the church can, can no longer say, in the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. They traded the spiritual power of intimacy with the Lord for material prosperity, a danger for any church that we would always be desperate for God because we know that the heart of our faith does not involve words with the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see that all through the book of Acts. So, back to the passage, Peter sees the crippled man there, says to him, you know, no have silver and gold, but what I do have a gift to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Then he reaches down, grabs his hand, 
Verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. First time ever. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you see it? You see it? I mean, here's this man. I love about little five or six, seven-year-old girls. You know, they, they can't just walk alone. They've got to skip and jump and run. And I love that about them. And uh, this guy was like that. He's like a five-year-old little girl. <laughs> He's skipping and jumping and leaping. And, you know, you see that big smile on his face. Maybe you see tears in his eyes. I'm well. I can walk. And he is just overwhelmed, and he is praising God. Not Peter and John, but he's praising God. And the, the, the sheer exuberance of this crippled man. You know, Isaiah 35, 6 foreshadows this event when it says, Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And it's referring to a prophecy when the Messiah comes. When the king comes, the, the lame will leap like a deer. And that's exactly what we see in Acts 3. Now, verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. We know this man. We know this man. He has been crippled from birth. He's never walked. And he's dancing and jumping and leaping. And don't you know those early and the, and the early church that the people uh, uh, in Jerusalem were just completely befuddled, befuddled and baffled. What's going on over there with those Christians? And so many of them came to faith. As we're going to see next chapter, we're going to see another couple of thousand come to faith. So they are astounded, filled with wonder and awe. Now, last week when we saw that classic description of life in the early church, Acts 2.43 had described the church this way, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And then the very next chapter, we get an example of that. Uh, signs and wonders done through the apostles, and the sense of awe coming on people. So verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, imagine that, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's. Now, Solomon's portico doesn't exist today. It was a long porch with marble columns, beautiful gleaming white along the eastern part of the temple. That's where it happened. That's where Peter and John were. Crowds came running just like they had come running a chapter earlier in Acts 2 when the Spirit is poured out, tongues of fire, foreign languages, loud rushing wind. The crowds came Peter stands up and preaches, and that's exactly what Peter does again when the crowds start coming. Verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Now, sometimes people who have a gift with healing or press into healing, think, well, you know, I'm something special. Not Peter and John. They knew there's nothing special about them. No extra godliness, no extra power. It all came from Jesus. And so they're like, you know, why are you staring at us? You know, this is Jesus who's doing this. Now remember, some several months before, 
before Jesus was crucified, Peter was so terrified of also being executed that even when a servant girl in the courtyard of Caiaphas said, aren't you a follower of Jesus? He denied it completely, three times. I mean, just like a wimp. But here he is, not months later, a few months later, he can stand up in front of a thousands of people, including the religious leaders who had the power to get him executed, and he's completely fearless. I mean, he is unintimidated 100%. And, and what's the difference? He has seen the risen Christ, and he, has, he can never get over it. To the extent that Peter and the other disciples who abandoned Jesus completely, they are as bold as a lion, and they will give the rest of their lives to following Jesus, even at the cost of their own lives. And Peter would end up being crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus was. I mean, their lives were completely different. They're filled with the Spirit. They are, they've seen the risen Christ, and they could never be the same again. In the second century, there was a scholar uh, by the name of Justin that we know in history as Justin Martyr. And I probably have 10,000 quotes that I've collected for 40 years. This is top five, I think, for me. This is what Justin said about the church in the early, uh, in the second century. He said, no one trusted in Socrates so as to die for his doctrine. But in Christ, not only philosophers and scholars believed but also artisans and people entirely uneducated, despising glory and fear and death. So here's Justin, a scholar. Before Jesus, you know, there's all this attention given to Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, guys like that, and he just points out to the scholars of his day, nobody died for Socrates. But in Jesus... Not only philosophers and scholars have believed, but artisans, everyday workers with their hands, and people who are entirely uneducated, they believe and they despise glory and fear and death. Don't you want to be like that? Don't you want to despise glory and fear and death? That's the disciple of Jesus. That's Peter, and that's how he lived. And when Jesus Christ gets a hold of you more and more in our lives, we will not care about impressing people. We'll despise glory. We won't be afraid of what people can do or what people think, but only what Christ thinks. And we will despise death because that means going to be with Christ. This is him. Back to Peter's message in verse 12. When Peter addressed, saw it and he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. This is not a new God here. This is our God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. There are not many advantages of knowing Greek because with English, you got, with all these translations we got today, we got an incredible treasure, just as good. But occasionally, there's just a little bit of nuance, including in this verse. Greek has a way of giving emphasis to some pronouns, and maybe it's one out of 20, but about a one out of 20, 
the Greek can emphasize it. And he, he does it here three times in a row. So this is what he's saying. When he says in the middle of verse 13, whom you delivered over. Is that still up there? Yes, it is. Whom, third line, whom you delivered over. He is emphasizing it. So in English, we would put that in italics or underline it. He's saying, God glorified him. You, you, you delivered him over for death. You denied him. I mean, he is rubbing it in. Um, and note the contrast. What God did, God glorified Jesus. What they did and they claimed to serve God is they denied him and dis delivered him over. Okay, verse 14, same thing, similar contrast. But you, emphatic, but you denied the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He's talking about Barabbas, isn't he? I mean, here's the holy and righteous one. You wanted a murderer. Contrast. And then one more in 15. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. You killed him, God raised him. God's get the final word. And then he says this. He says, to this we are witnesses. You can never forget, this is not religious speculation. This is not philosophy. This is eyewitness testimony. And it changed their lives. I mean, they would go the rest of their lives, not for some, you know, big reward here on this earth, but because they had seen the risen Christ, and they couldn't get over it, and they just had to let the world know about it. To this, we are witnesses. And so finally, last verse I'm going to read in verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, Jesus, he's talking about, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. You know him. And the faith that is through Jesus, he's talking about Peter and John's faith, not the man's faith. He didn't know about Jesus. He says, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Jesus, King Jesus, healed him. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, a hobbit. You guys uh, aware that Tolkien was a, a scholar at Oxford? In fact, he's the man that primarily God used to, to, to lead C.S. Lewis to Christ. Uh, Tolkien, a devout Catholic Christian, in one of his fantasy tales, writes this. He said, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Now, I assume that's about one of his fantasy worlds, but being a devout Christian, I bet he was thinking about Jesus also. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. And though we see healing throughout the Bible, we never see it more than in the four Gospels, and we see it plenty in the book of Acts. So this is the unpacking the details of the first recorded healing in the early church, but let's pause, let's step wider, take a bigger biblical view of healing. What is God's perspective on healing? And what is God's perspective on healing today in our world? Several things we could say all through the Bible we see this healing, especially in the Gospels and especially in the book of Acts, but all through the Bible. We know that God is healing all over the world today. I'm, I am confident that every day all over the world there are various healings that we never hear about. Sometimes we do. We also 
know that God does not always heal miraculously. I mean, Christians do die, don't we? Clearly, it's no problem for God to heal. I mean, we're talking about, that's what Peter is suggesting here. He says, you know, why are you staring at us? We had the power. You know, if, if, there's, if God exists, if, if God who created the galaxies, like 400 billion galaxies, I mean, healing one of these little two-legged creatures, no problem. I mean, God, no problem for God to heal. A New Testament scholar by the name of Gordon Fee writes this. He said, Jesus... Paul and the rest of the early church lived in regular expectation that God would heal people's physical bodies. This expectation was based in part on the Old Testament promises that in the Messianic age, God would heal his people. According to Acts, such healings accompanied Paul's own ministry. Only among the intellectuals and in a scientific age is it thought to be too hard for God to heal the sick. It is difficult to live in the world that we live in with so much of it dominated by university and media elite and to have a biblical worldview. Your only hope is if you soak in this Bible because if you're going to fill your mind with words of man, you too are going to think, well, that stuff is impossible. In this scientific age, we're beyond that. And you're going to drift away from biblical faith. You're going to be like the the Christians that Timothy said was going to happen. They're going to give lip service to a form of religion but deny its power. And we don't want to be like that. But if you live in this book, then that's your worldview. That's how you see life. God is a healing God. There's questions about it, of course. But you know he heals. This past uh, Thursday morning, I'm looking over for Rudy Beeching. Maybe he'll be in the next service. Rudy is a banker in our church. And Thursday morning, I'd finished writing this message. I was praying about it, kind of wrapping it up. And I get the, an email from Rudy Beeching, whom I've known a long time. Rudy uh, tells me this story that um, when we began a f- our 40 days of prayer, September 1 through October 10, he said, we began that. I suggested, especially on Wednesday nights, but I suggested that people write in our prayer journals that we have. We've got these big, thick prayer journals. Uh, write in there three God-sized requests. And during the 40 days, let's, let's be praying that God would answer them. We had a number of them answered, and we're still praying for them. Rudy uh, says that he wrote one of his three was about a colleague at work, a woman who was diagnosed this past January with a very serious lung cancer that has spread throughout her lymph system, so much so that MD Anderson was telling them that they would, uh, they would try chemo, but if the masses didn't respond, they'd stop the treatments and just encourage her to live out her days. And basically, they'd try a round of chemo, and if it helped some in two weeks, after the two weeks, they would do another two weeks. She said she had been living life in two-week intervals since January, so it had been 10 months or by September, eight months, when uh, she started. And they said that she had 12 months to live. So Rudy says that on that first Wednesday night, I put her down, and we prayed for progress every two weeks. We prayed for her caregivers. We prayed all around, but we did not specifically pray for her healing, a miracle. And on that Wednesday night, when 
we introduced the journals, God-sized prayer requests, Rudy said, we drew a circle around her and asked God to do what he had the authority to do to heal her. And then this last Thursday morning, um, I get this email from Rudy saying, she, she just informed me this morning that their doctors had discontinued chemo, not because of the advance of the cancer, but because of the retreat of the cancer. He said, all but one of the tumors have decreased in size and have left, except one, and her doctors at MD Anderson were confident that radiation would take care of that one. So instead of seeing her doctor every two weeks, they told her not to visit again for three months. Chemotherapy has been stopped. Rudy, Rudy ended, praise God, that he is faithful to hear the prayers of his people. Now, here's the voice of Satan inside. Oh, it's just coincidence. Just like when I was praying, just coincidence, that's the voice of the enemy. You know, when you pray, coincidences happen because God is at work. But we all have a question in our minds. Why doesn't God always heal people? I mean, aren't you praying for some people and have been praying for a long time that have not been healed? I have. You know, one, I'm going on about 12 years. Others, a lot. We've got you know, a couple of three-year-olds three year in this church that desperately need a miracle, and a lot of adults and others. Why not more healings? Basically, I do not know. God has his reasons. He does not always disclose those to us. I know Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belongs to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We've got enough to obey. Sometimes God heals people that we would not expect to be. Why do you heal that person? Other times, He does not heal somebody that we would expect Him to heal. God is God. He is so vast and great. I mean, how can a six-month-old how can my four-month-old grandson, Archie, in the back there understand theory of relativity? I mean, the gap between Archie and Einstein is finite. The gap between you and God is infinite. How can we begin to understand God? Let's humble ourselves, believe what he says, but recognize we don't understand all that God does and all God allows. When we get to heaven one day, we will look back and see he was faithful every step of the way. Now, during this life, we live by faith. We don't live by sight. We don't live by reason. We don't live by our understanding. And, and I imagine this is part of the reason because God is teaching you and me to trust him in the good times and the bad times. If you just trusted God in the good times, it would just be a, a big bribe. But we trust our God no matter what. And we don't understand all that he does, but we trust him. One of the key passages, it seems to me, in all the Bible, probably the key passage on the life of faith, is found in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And see if it doesn't apply specifically to this kind of instance. Trust, by the way, everybody here ought to know this verse. Now, I might mess it up right now, but, you know, <laughs> taking a risk. Every Christian ought to know this verse. And regularly repeat it to yourself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, let's just pause right there. Don't depend on your own understanding about what God is going to do and what he's not going to do. 
Don't lean on your understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him. What's that mean, acknowledge him? Well, you acknowledge that he is God and you're not. You acknowledge that he's the Lord. You acknowledge that he has all power, all wisdom, all goodness, all love. You acknowledge that he's God. That's biblical faith. This is your only time in all eternity to live by faith. When you die and get to heaven, you'll have sight, not faith. This is the only time of your battle to trust your God. Of course, there's going to be some sufferings and some challenges and not everything to be expected like we want. All your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. We look at Jesus Christ and we see what God is like and we see in his face all power and all love. And Jesus is enough for me. Let me clarify that there are four kinds of healings. Because we need to expand sometimes that healing includes more than just instantaneous miraculous healing of the sort that I had when I was four or of the sort that this woman apparently had. Sometimes God does heal miraculously and instantly. And there are some of the testimonies are just off the charts dramatic. Secondly, at times God heals gradually. I think that was largely true of my healing from mental disease eight years ago. At times, God heals through medicine and physicians. Thank God for medicine and physicians. At times, God heals to them, but, but God heals. They may get the money, but God heals. <laughs> and largely forgotten at times, many times, God heals when we get to heaven. You will die unless Christ comes back. You will die, and we will all have our ultimate healing in heaven. We may not understand all that God does when it comes to healing, but we obey what he says. And one of the things he says is to ask, to ask, to ask, to pray, to pray, to pray, and keep on praying. So the Bible does say when you have sickness, uh, need for healing, ask God to heal you. Now that is a black and white command. And so if you're not asking for healing, you're disobeying the Lord. You're not acknowledging him as your Lord. In fact, James 5.14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Oil, symbol of the Spirit. Now, we do that every Wednesday night. We do that on Sunday mornings. We have elders, prayer partners, intercessors up here, and we, we do that every Sunday morning, and we especially press in on Wednesday night. This verse, okay, if you're sick, not only go to the physician, but, but go to the elders of your church and ask them to lay hands on you and pray. If you don't ever do that, I suspect that you have bought into a scientific, unbelieving age. And you need to get back to a Bible perspective. And you need to ask God to heal you. He may or may not. That's his concern. Your concern is to obey the Lord. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This coming Wednesday night, we are especially going to press in to praying for healing. And so I would ask you, uh, between now and Wednesday night, pray that God would particularly uh, heal people this Wednesday night to encourage us. Um, God has done that in some dramatic ways over the years at Woods Edge, but we don't see near as many healings as we would like. We want to see more. If you have a friend or a neighbor who needs healing, by all means, invite them. Now, 
let me conclude with a great quote on healing from a Norwegian pastor by the name of Ole Hallesby. This was his perspective. Lord, if it will be to your glory, heal suddenly. If it will glorify you more, heal gradually. If it will glorify you even more, may your servant remain sick a while. And if it will glorify your name still more, take him to yourself in heaven. There is a man who lives by faith, who understands that the biggest value is not life on this earth, but it is life with God drawing close to him. Stand with me, please. Lord, would you please pour out your healing touch upon your people. Lord, thank you for the examples, but oh God, we want to see far more. Oh Lord, I think of Sonia, and I think of Sydney, and I think of Helen, and Naomi, and Michael, Natasha, and so many others, Lord God, who need dramatic healing. And Lord, no problem for you. And so we ask that you would do it by your grace. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.